0: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, joseph Gabriel. Today, I have the pleasure to be talking with Jason Herbeck about his new book, Architectural Authenticity, Constructing Literature and Literary Identity in the French Caribbean. Jason is professor of French at Boise State University in Idaho. His research focuses primarily on evolving narrative forms in 20th and 21st century French and French-Caribbean literatures, and how these forms relate to expressions and constructions of identity. In addition to many articles and book chapters devoted to the literatures and histories of Haiti, Martinique, and Guadeloupe, he has also published widely on Albert Camus and is, since 2009, president of the North American section of the Société des Etudes Camusiennes. Thank you for joining us, Jason.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for interest in my book
0: so i'm so excited to kind of dive into this conversation um i have to confess that for the last couple of days i've been kind of practicing in the mirror how to say architectural authenticity <laughs> um and it's it's really it's a, it's such a fascinating title and it's really what my what caught my eye um when i when i first looked at this text um, and it's an equally fascinating concept that you develop through this title um because this, this concept kind of has two parts right so architectural which highlights the quality of literary identity as something that's constructed um and so you think of architecture in a more literal sense by analyzing things like gingerbread houses in haiti um and and architecture and thinking about how the text is constructed. So architectural is doing all of this work. And then next to it is authenticity, which is a term that I was, I must confess being a little bit surprised to see, um, you know, because it's a bit of a troubled term in colonial and post-colonial studies. And, and you, you do a really um, interesting job um, or a really excellent job in, in this interesting way that you tease out how authenticity delineates relationships of the past or, to an original that can be reproduced or not reproduced so your title alone has these two very loaded terms um and we could probably spend an hour just talking about your title but i'd like for listeners to hear i guess in your own words how this title is framing the work that you're doing in this book
1: okay um yeah i think uh you've done an excellent job explaining the contradiction that i wanted to be inherent in the title itself in other words uh Architectural, um, based on the text uh, from the Gerard Genette's concept, is really to break it down the construction of text. In other words, what goes into a given text that we might read on a given day? Um, The generic, lexical, discursive, thematic, and structural blueprints of sorts from which a text emerges and is created, and. Some people might immediately react to that and say, "No, I, I mean texts are quite free in their creation; it's the author's uh, impetus alone that creates the text and allows it to uh, to become something." But in the context of structuralism, narratology, I really wanted to look at how authors approach the act of writing, and I think in the context of the French Caribbean, this is very, very poignant because it's hard to read, not by an exaggeration, but it is it is difficult to read a work from the French Caribbean that does not in some way reflect upon itself. There's the act of writing or the act of creation or the questioning of what, is one, what one is saying to express oneself in the works themselves. And that's always fascinated me. And I felt that architecture was a, a really good door to open in terms of trying to understand why we are constantly coming back in this literature to questions of not just what we are saying, but how we are saying it. So on the one hand, it's it's kind of a structuralist, formalist approach. And on the other, it's authenticity, which was, in theory, um, as I try to explain in my book, would be antithetical to any type of architecture. In other words, how can one be original if we're building with blocks of other entities with former genres, with um, previously hashed out themes, um, different types of discursive uh, narratives that have already been used and in a sense imposed in some regards by other, other authors. And uh, what I was trying to demonstrate right from the start is that you're absolutely right. Authenticity is a, is almost a taboo term in many regards. And some people push back quite strongly on it. And I welcome that, that pushback because it really forced me to justify my decision to use the word authenticity. And as I explain in the book, authentic actually has two very different meanings um, in different contexts based on what type of emphasis you put on the past or present. In one regard, authentic refers to an original, something that has preexisted what is coming afterwards. And so if I want to become authentic based on some preconceived, pre-existent identity, then I'm going to try to, I guess, piece together characteristics of what I assume is that, uh, that former identity or one that perhaps still exists but that I want to imitate in some way. It's an imitation or an attempt to imitate. Whereas there's also a different type of auth- uh, authenticity that focuses on truly being original and its emphasis on the past is only an emphasis with respect to demonstrating how what this identity is in the present differs from what has preceded it. And so this is the authenticity that I'm talking about because in the context of colonization, um, the imposition of all types of different strictures and the structures of the colonial empire to pretend that we might actually go back prior to this colonial era and retrieve what existed at the time and therefore become authentic based solely on an imitation of the past is unfeasible, and I think many people have already agreed to that um, writers um, theorists etc and so what I 'm trying to look at in my book is the divide that seems to be inherent between building a text the architectural properties of it and how that text itself could be something new and appreciated as such.
0: Mm. I, I find that really interesting because you talk about, you know, on one hand, this this language of construction and architecture that that permeates your work. Um, you know, in, in your response that you just gave, for example, you talk a lot about construction, about blueprints, about building blocks, and then you have this divide with, you know, the impossibility of, I suppose, building this sort of, you know, original preserved, you know, culture identity from a past that you know has has been has suffered this kind of rupture um, through through the the fact of or the experience of colonialism. And so one of the ways that you engage with architecture is to consider the idea of building materials. And there's a quote from your book that I found so generative because you say how or you ask rather, how is identity constructed when the very tools and materials historical, linguistic, literary, and otherwise, with which the Caribbean self is to be expressed, have, with only scarce exceptions, been fabricated by the former colonizer. And one of the reasons I found this text so interesting is because it... It is quite closely related to, I think, Audre Lorde's formulation in her you know, 1979 speech titled The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Um, and so, you know, Lorde thinks about not how to construct in the way that you're thinking, but rather how to dismantle or take apart the edifice of racist patriarchy. So, in the 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 books that you look at, what are some of the building materials that your writers use, and what do they do with these materials? I guess, in short, what I'm asking is, do they try to build a new house with the master's tools, and how does that process work?
1: That's an excellent question. That's what I'm trying to get at um, at the heart of my uh, my exploration of these ideas, and essentially, what I'm demonstrating, where I'm trying to illustrate. In these works is that it's it's some way inevitable that one must construct the space of construct must happen within certain confines that from which the writer cannot escape. in other words, if a writer was uh was educated in a certain colonial mindset, language um ideals, et cetera they have to begin by working with those tools. There, is, there are very seldom other options that they have at their disposal. And a lot of writers from Confiant to Césaire, um, they look at this as initially a very, very frustrated endeavor. Inherently, it's, it's almost impossible. But what I try to demonstrate is that it's important not just to understand from where these different building blocks come. But just as importantly, it, you have to question them as they become part of your own creative process of expression. And so, in terms of architecture, what I find one of the, I guess, one of the most telling aspects of this literature is, for me, when writers in their works either refer to explicitly or implicitly other works of literature. And I think in the past, very, very often literary critics have seen that as almost a crutch or a way of saying, I am not going to say this has already been said, therefore here's the quote, or I'm referring to this so that implicitly a reader will know in thinking about the work that I have just alluded to, what I'm talking about. And I kind of resist that type of reading because I find it too simple. It's it's asking readers to go back into certain frameworks or structures and accept them for what they are. And rather, in the works that I examine in my book, what I try to demonstrate is that time again, when, for instance, these types of texts or source texts, as they're called, come up, they are not taken at face value. They are questioned. They are truncated purposefully so that what's missing has to be examined and has to be questioned. And that's where that missing part or what it's supposed to suggest but doesn't in the context of the work that's being written, that's where I feel there is a new type of construction with the very elements that one has at his or her disposal.
0: So in this process of kind of questioning and, and self-reflection and, and reflecting on other texts that writers are engaging with in their works, um, why, why do you select the writers and these particular texts that you select? And I ask because once I started to read your analysis um, of, you know, like dwelling structures like the home, etc., I started to see how architecture is pertinent throughout all of French Caribbean literature. I just started to see architectural authenticity everywhere. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about like Rue Caznegre, for example, um, Texaco, Rosalie uh, femme, right, where Evelyn Trouillot is thinking about different different kinds of dwelling spaces, like the slave quarters, like the master's house, and even the barracoons kind of becomes this almost architectural, architect, architectural <laughs> physical space, um, you know, that functions in multiple ways. And so I, I'm, I don't know whether you're your experience was that you were spoiled for choice or that you know you actually had a limited set of texts that you could look at but i'm wondering what you found particularly generative about the text and writers that you select
1: that's a great question i'm very happy that uh in reading my my book you began to think of all these other works that could be perhaps looked at in this light that's uh i thank you for saying that <laughs> that's, <laughs> what, that's what i was hoping in writing because you're right um There were a lot of other works that uh, friends, colleagues, uh, anonymous readers suggested to me and said, well, we should look at this too. And the list went on and on. And uh, to begin to answer your question, I decided early on that what I would look at is what I determined microstructures as opposed to macrostructures. And a microstructure, in the case of my book, is simply an individual house um, that normally housed a person or a family, a single Family unit, um, exactly like with texaco uh, or um, uh, other works, I could look at entire neighborhoods, entire cities um, quartiers um, and I think that that actually could be a very interesting sequel of sorts to this type of analysis to look at how entire uh, neighborhoods are depicted in the context of a particular moment in time in this hun- in this country's history. Um, but I decided uh, to become somewhat, uh, I guess, non-diverse in in this in this uh, regard. I wanted to focus on individual houses, and I think I was trying to think recently about why I decided to focus on houses. And I, there might be two, just general explanations in terms of my own arrival at this uh, decision. And uh, a long time ago, I read. Um, uh, Vladimir Nabokov's lectures on literature and lectures that he actually gave on various uh, pieces of literature. And he has this fascinating lecture on uh, Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And what he does is, in describing the identity of this individual, who obviously is, has two different types of identities um, within himself, he decides to analyze in detail where this person lives. And he suggests by a very fine blueprint of the description that could be rendered via the text that there are two clear entrances to this person's uh, house, which is actually kind of an apartment because it's on a city block. Um, and that while one is on an open square, it's very very nicely built up, it's very prestigious, etc. it's for the doctor, the other is in a back alley and it's torn down, it's, uh, there are vagrants that hang out outside the door. And what he demonstrates, uh, Nabokov, in his lecture, is that the house itself typifies the two sides of this individual, the Jekyll and yeah. the Hyde. And so, it always stuck with me, and um, I didn't bring this to my reading. But I think eventually, and it was in particular with respect to reading uh, Traversée de la Mangrove by Marie Condé. I found myself wondering why the main character, Francie Sancher, um, decides to write the the history of his life and that of his family on the veranda of his house. Why not outside or why not in the house? And somehow Condé, for some reason, makes it very clear where he sets up his table and his typewriter. He's on the veranda. And so I started thinking about that in the context of the public reading that Patrick Chamoiseau gave of her, of her um, novel where he criticizes her use of certain words. He lauds her use of other words and he really goes through and tries to determine where she is, I guess, writing correctly in a Creole mindset and where she has adapted the words of the colonizer or where she is writing for the colonizer with these footnotes that are not necessary for someone from the area they know what certain words mean automatically and i realized that perhaps i could look or explain patrick Chamoiseau's frustration and Condé's uh success to her her response by looking at where francis sanchez was writing his his story and he's not he's not entirely in this house, which was built in the colonial, colonial area, uh, sorry, colonial era. Um, and he's not necessarily outside entirely free with his, uh, his expression. He's somewhere caught in the middle. And so he can't forget this colonial mindset, this structure around him, but at the same time, he is aware that there's more than that. And over the course of the novel, in returning to the house, I read it over and over, and there's actually a lot of information about this house in the novel, which, which can be pieced together from the narratives of different individuals um, on which the, uh, the 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 novel focalizes. And I guess this is a long answer to your question, but I think that allowed me to think, you know, what maybe I could look at not just the building of the literature itself within the novel, but also a particular building in the novel or this house? Is there some type of architectural and architectural dual lens that would allow me to examine the construction of identity um, in perhaps parallel, although distinct ways? And so the other works that I came across um, were, I guess, kind of, they came across, the or they, they came about much in the way that you were thinking of different works of literature. I thought back after I had, in a sense, realized that there was this interesting uh, combination of architecture and architecture in Condé's novel. What other works seemed to fit this mold, for lack of a better term? And I realized quite quickly that there were many options out there, but I tried to focus on novels where there is a particular house that is described abundantly and seems to have some evolving role. It wasn't static. That was important. It wasn't something someone could come back to over the years, and which had not changed. The house itself, um, I talk about bioarchitecture because I believe that these constructions in literature are changing. They're, they're, they aren't static or uh, immobile in terms of their own depiction.
0: I'm, I'm so glad you brought up um you know conde's protagonist on the veranda because one of the things that becomes quite evident right reading through your work is that being attentive to architecture in the way that you are leads us to consider you know interior and exterior spaces in this process of constructing literary identity um and so aside from i guess Traversé de la mangrove where where we Quite literally, writing from the space of the veranda that straddles this interior- exterior kind of boundary, how do these terms of inside and outside play out in some of the other works that you consider?
1: Um, I guess I could uh, uh, discuss um, *Illy en Nuit* uh, by uh, Daniel Maxima, which is the third novel of his Caribbean trilogy. Uh, the first is L'Isole, *Lisole Soleil*, uh, with which I was quite familiar, and *Lisole Soleil*. There's a, there are two characters uh, who are discussing at one point how to incorporate ideas of others. And there's a miscommunication between the two. And at one point, Simia, I believe it's Simia in the novel, says, no, it's important. What I'm trying to say is that you should not uh, adopt these former ideas or these previously articulated concepts. You should adapt them. And I thought, wow, that is fascinating because that's kind of what I'm trying to demonstrate in this literature um, at large. And so, when uh, and actually, I have to one of the readers of uh, Liverpool University Press to thank. She suggested that I, as a long list of as we were discussing uh, possibilities, she said you should really look at Lily and Nui, uh by Maxima, and I had hadn't read that novel of the trilogy yet, and so I started reading it, and it's about a woman who. Uh, closes herself up in her home during what is essentially, but not named as such, uh, the passing of Hurricane Hugo in 1989. And it is her alone bearing the brunt of the storm around her. And what I realized quite quickly in reading the novel, in stark contrast to the first novel of uh, Maximan's trilogy, uh, L'Isulé Soleil, It was almost devoid, so it appeared, of any type of intertextual elements, hypertextual elements. Um, There were very few outside references made at all in the context of the seven hours of this siege uh, by the storm. And so I wondered, why is that? And it occurred to me quite quickly that there was this process by which you could see the storm, which came, of course, across the Atlantic, described as such battering this house in Guadeloupe as allegorical for the imposition of, of a European colonial mindsets, uh, different types of structures. And so I thought, is there a connection between the lack, the apparent lack at least, of intertextual sources in this novel as opposed to previously in the two novels of the trilogy? And an attempt to articulate what it means to preserve oneself, because after all, this is a story of survival. She has to remain alive during the storm's passing. And because she is the sole person on whom the narrative is focalized, if she were to die over the course of this storm, in a sense, we can assume that the narrative itself would end. And so there's this very type of, there's a very tight affinity between her narrative personally and the narrative of her narrative. And so the more I started looking at it, I realized that there were what I argue are allusions to other works that aren't named explicitly, but in recognizing them, we can better understand that we can't remain entirely hermetically protected from the sources around us. We have to actually remain open and understand them as they pass through us, so to speak, in this house. And this is typified by the house in which she takes shelter. She could have easily have left it and taken shelter with friends, family, but she decides to be there because the house itself represents her, her past. Um, and she. there's this symbiosis that is articulated in the novel where she's there to help the house and the house is there to help her. And she cannot simply batter down the hatches and make the house hermetically sealed because that could actually make the house explode over the course of this hurricane's passing. And so there's a very careful, deliberate understanding of this acceptability of being, I guess, remaining accessible from outside sources. If she were to refuse them 100%, it's very clear in the novel that that is a, is a recipe for disaster. And there's this architectural typology that is quite early on explained over the course, uh, explained in the first part of the novel, where by way of letters from um, a friend that are given to her, previous storms are explained as they come across uh, the uh, Caribbean Archipelago, and certain types of structures are immediately identified as safe structures. And one might think that it should be the, the rich villas, which are very well built, etc. But it's made very clear that, in fact, those ones, because they are so well constructed, they are hermetically sealed and therefore much more prone to be destroyed in a hurricane event.
0: Wow, this is really interesting. And so, you have kind of this this house that becomes you know this that's symbolic of a larger kind of narrative that's symbolic of a larger body of literature and and the idea of permeability as necessary for survival um and i think that that's a thread that has actually been running through much of this conversation because you you talked a little bit earlier as well about this kind of dialogue between Kondi and Shamazo and that this permeability, this accessibility becomes a way of thinking about texts and writers as being, you know, continuously in conversation, almost as a, as a question of, of survival. What does it mean to create this, this literary identity for this region that has been under siege from, you know, colonial imposition? Um, and so thinking about permeable texts and thinking about conversations across not just works and spaces, but time. Um, I, I want to consider an earlier generation of writers, um, like Suzanne Cézia and René Menil, who might also be in conversation. So for example, for these two writers, um, you know, they, they argue that Antillian literature cannot be that authentic expression of Antillian identity um, because there's just too much of, of an imitation of French literature. So, you know, Suzanne is particularly concerned about how. The, the style of Antillean literature is, is really tethered to a sort of colonial French style. Um, and Menil argues that even when Antillian literature tries to pull away, because it is responding to that initial French style and French idea of literary production, it becomes overdetermined. And so even in that act of pulling away, that original, if you will, kind of, you know, still shapes what the response looks like. And so, you know, for both of these writers, then folklore, Is where they turn as that possibility for authentic expression. So, you know, write off Antillian literature to some extent, and folklore is where this authenticity can be located. How do you think that your authors would respond to this view of folklore kind of in opposition to literature?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I know in terms of folklore, these are, you know, supposedly stories that were passed on um, over the generations and that preexisted to some extent at least the colonial era they do hark back to a certain type of authenticity that is not the authenticity that i'm uh, discussing in my novel that i think that it's it's hard to get to that um exclusively and i think that you know narratives evolve over time regardless of when they began Um, that being said I discuss uh, Bernabé, Chamoison et Confiant in Lege de la Créolité, and at that point in 1989, they too are saying that at this point, Caribbean, French Caribbean literature does not exist. Um, we are still steeped in values that are not our own. We are steeped in traditions, um, uh, literary traditions, uh, styles, genres that are not our own. And I think that with respect to the works that I examine, it becomes more and more clear, and I think this is articulated very, very well by Condé in her response to Chamoisot's uh, public reading of her text, that if we are to refuse certain influences simply because we recognize them as, quote-unquote, not our own, then by definition, we are limiting ourselves and our expression And so, as a result, we have to not necessarily accept, and this comes back to the idea of face value as such, certain traditions, um, certain um, times of history, but we should, in fact, in articulating them and incorporating them in our own narratives, be very clear that they are seen as being different in our discourse. They're treated differently. And uh, I think um I just forgot uh I was going to give an example of that Oh uh, uh I believe it's confiant It's interesting how different authors over the course of the last 60 70 years in the Caribbean have attempted different ways of arriving at the time at what they called an authentic discourse and I think that idea has changed remarkably and I could not have written a book arguing for that type of authenticity However um, there are examples, maybe it was Shem Wazo, where uh, they would listen to the radio and listen to the obituaries on the radio. And from those obituaries, draw the names of individuals, because those names themselves were, quote-unquote, authentic names that were not part of the colonial project. I find that interesting that it's looking for minute pieces with which to construct an authentic discourse. And I think, and I think Kony is one of the leaders in demonstrating this, to proceed as such or uniquely as such is impossible. You will have too meager pieces or too few tools with which to create uh, what I would call an authentic discourse because there simply isn't that much left uh, with which to c- construct. And so, by definition, these authors cannot ignore what happened over the course of colonization. And if they speak differently, if they have different vocabulary words, if they are familiar with different um, types of discourses, those become therefore part of their means of expression.
0: Mm. So we've been talking quite a bit about authors from Martinique and Guadeloupe, um, but you also write about Haiti um, in, in this book. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your experience writing across Martinique, Guadeloupe, and Haiti, um, given their connections, but also some very stark kind of divergent moments in their histories?
1: hmm um, I think, at least in terms of my book, one of the connections would be with respect to questioning and negotiating issues of autonomy. And this, of course, is strictly related to identity. And what I mean by that is two of the novels that I look at from Martinique and Guadeloupe are focused on the early to mid 1940s and the era where the former French colonies in, on the heels of World War II become departments. So it's the departmentalisation. Um, Of the former French colonies, and there, there is a a very deep questioning of what do we become now? Um, Do we become entirely independent, autonomous? Do we define ourselves differently, or is there this départementalisation where we, I guess, grant ourselves or are granted some type of autonomy, and yet within a larger French-centric Uh, political, social, governmental uh, entity. And the parallel to be made, I think, with Haiti, which uh, which of course earned their independence uh, much earlier in 1804, comes about in a type of retrospective way when the earthquake hits Haiti, because once again, yet again, there's this international presence attempting to say what should be done to allow the, the country to, quote, unquote, get back on its feet and become uh, self-sufficient. And I think that's where, even though the trajectories that you suggested are very different um, quite early on in the history of the colonization or the um, uh, yeah, the colonial empire in the Caribbean, there are these parallels whereby there are moments where, I guess, the the desire or the determination with which, the country must be defined or is looking to be defined by itself as opposed to an outside entity come to the forefront. And I think with regards to the two texts that I examine in my book uh, with Yannick Lance's uh, Faye and Guillaume Nathalie, there really is this attempt not just to rewrite history in terms of the story of the characters, the fictional characters that she was working on when the earthquake hit, but there is this questioning and this pushback on the attempt that others have made to either reinscribe or continually inscribe Haiti in this discourse of disaster or to attempt to forge a new identity uh, without, and there's this, obviously the big debate on reconstructing Haiti. What is reconstruction? Does that mean starting over? Um, there are, collections of books, uh, of essays written on this topic, suggesting if we are to start over um, in Haiti, where would Haitians start at the revolution, prior to the revolution, um, after the American occupation, after the earthquake. It's interesting to to look at where different scholars um, and writers feel it is important to, quote-unquote, begin again, or with what? (laughs) what. What is allowed to continue on um, in the absence of certain things that are determined to be inherently uh, deconstructive to one's ideals.
0: Right. So the, the the 2010, you know, earthquake that that devastated Haiti, um, it, it's, it does open up a lot of questions, um, right? And, and I think it's really interesting that you identify that as as this point of connection, Um With Guadeloupe and Martinique, also in that sort of you know moment of questioning and and self-definition or or construction, um, you know at the point of departmentalization, Um, but it's also an interesting or an important moment to bring up in our conversation today, um, you know because today, well, we're we're exactly a week ago today marks the eighth anniversary of this earthquake. And I think that in public discourse here in the U.S., the commemoration of this moment was overshadowed by a rather heated debate um, in response to Donald Trump's recent comments kind of denigrating immigrants from Haiti and the African continent. And what I'm really interested in are the responses to the comment. And so, you know, the responses have ranged from Exposes about Haiti's historical aid to the U.S. in the period of revolution, which is a key period that you you mentioned in your response, um, you know, to other responses that provide a list of achievements of individuals from Haiti whose, you know, statesmanship, work, ethic, cultural contributions have had an impact, uh, whether local or international, um, So I'm not asking you to necessarily wade into the very fraught waters of this debate. Um, But what I'm asking is that given your expertise, your close reading, you know, and and your in-depth study of how Haitian writers like Yannick Laonce, like Evelyn Trujillo, construct Haitian literary identity in their works, what light can your work shed on sort of the more expansive terms on which we may respond to the unsavory comments, right? Beyond this list of responses that I've given, which I think are sometimes limiting in terms of, you know, responding as yes, we are, or no, we are not what you say we are. How do these writers and, and your, your analysis of their work shed light on how we may open up the terms on which we can have a conversation about the ongoing construction of a place like Haiti,
1: that's an excellent question um, as well, Annette. <laughs> um, I think that it's important to, to see literature as a means of grappling with these issues. And with respect to the earthquake, it was interesting, uh, Martin Monroe has documented this uh, very articulately in one of his books, the different types of responses that came after the earthquake by Haitians from Haiti and the diaspora. And first it was op-ed pieces and then, uh, it was longer articles. And then it was, uh, shorter pieces, whether it be poetry, uh, short stories. And now we're seeing, um, uh, novels, um, about this era. They're continually, um, produced and, um, published today. And so there is a response to these these times where identity is not necessarily questioned first and foremost in Haiti, but projected on Haiti by others. And I think that the writers with whom I'm familiar won't necessarily respond word for word to what has been said, um, to how Haitians and African countries have been denigrated um, by the president. But rather, they will renew the ways in which they describe their country, which may not change, but will continually show an optimistic struggle to become something that perhaps they aren't right now. And they wouldn't obviously refer to their country in the same way. But literature is a forum for struggle. It's a forum for attempting to articulate new ways, new visions of, uh, of being of, 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 expressing oneself. And, uh, um, I was fortunate to have Evan Toyo come to campus several years ago. And over the course of the semester, my students had read quite a few novels by her. And, and so when she came to campus, we not only discussed those novels, but there was an open session where students could ask any question they wanted. And Evelyn of course was very uh, welcoming. And one of my students, um, and I'm glad that the student asked the question. It was a very sincere question. Asked, how can you write such sad literature? How can you keep writing about such, such difficult things? And Evelyn's response was incredible. She kind of, Looked at the student and said, I don't see it as sad. When you write about struggle, that's automatically optimistic. And I think that type of response to, by, by writers, is, I optimistically myself say, inevitable. There will, as soon as there are people writing about these issues, it will require, or at least it will strongly encourage people to see both sides of the issue and to see what people are doing, whether they be Haitian immigrants here doing amazing things, or people in Haiti um, doing amazing things, they will see this country and its people differently. And so I think that literature is ultimately something that will, over time, it's not something that can be created overnight, but it will find its own way to respond to these types of remarks
0: Literature as struggle, renewal, and new ways of being I, I find that so incredibly powerful because these are comments that i've i 've struggled with as well and to 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 think about optimism um, as something that underlies you know haitian writers renewal of the ways that they describe the country, the space, the people, I think is something that is particularly powerful. I've been talking with Jason Herbeck about his book, Architectural Authenticity, Constructing Literature and Literary Identity in the French Caribbean. Jason, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you so much, Annette. It was a pleasure.